Hello and welcome to the All Together Now podcast with me, Greg O'Keefe, and as usual, Tony Scott. And this evening we're joined by someone we're both fortunate enough to call a friend, and I also used to call a boss. It's the, uh, the former <laughs> sports editor of the Liverpool Echo, Father's Side, Maestro, Dave Prentice. <laughs> You never used Even to call Dave. Me <laughs> <laughs> Probably plenty of other things. No, it was an absolute, absolute treat uh, to work with you, Greg. Uh, absolute top journalist, top fella. And Scotty, absolute treat to play with him on the fiver side. <laughs> <laughs> He still runs rings around me on a Tuesday night, so whenever I'm fit enough to play, which isn't very often these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, just before we get into the reason that, that Dave's kindly joins us tonight, um, a quick message to our usual listeners. You might have noticed over the past few weeks that you've not seen the podcast dropping into your, your, iTunes, your Apple Podcasts, your iTunes, your Spotify, uh, or your iHeartRadio, whichever way you listen to it. And that's because we've moved to a new platform. We've moved to a platform called Patreon. You may or may not have heard of it. And essentially, it's, it's now um, behind a paywall. So that means that for £3 a month, you can get... Well, so you, you articulate this better than me. Explain what they get for, for the money going behind the, the paywall. Yeah. Well, it's effectively 75 pence a week, £3 a month. And you'll be guaranteed three Everton podcasts per week. So that's obviously 12 a month. You've guaranteed, a, obviously, a preview of the Everton's match. And then, obviously, we'll meet Greg and David and allies and see how we, how we get on. Instant match reaction and also a news story. So you'll be guaranteed really good Everton content throughout your week. So it's well worth sticking with us on our Patreon website. And we do know, obviously, like this, you know, this time more than ever, it, it's a bit of a pain when people are, you're used to getting a podcast and all of a sudden they're asking you to dig into your pockets. Essentially, we've done it for, for nothing for a couple of years. We've got to a point where to try and grow the podcast, to get more content, to get more episodes, to get different guests. This is the, the decision that we've, um, we've decided to go with. So we hope that you can back us and stay with us. And um, yeah, we'll hope to see you with patrons soon. Now, back to tonight's show. A grand old team to report is the book, 45 Years Following Everton Football Club by David Prentice. It's actually, fact fans, his second book. His first one was in a Christmas uh, stocking that I got. I wouldn't like to say how long ago, but it was a while ago. He, he's, left, he's left us waiting since the early days of 10-year blues for, uh, for the follow-up. This, I've got it in my hands here. It's an absolutely fantastic, well... I'm halfway through it because it only arrived the other day, but it's an absolutely fantastic book itself. I love the feel. You can, you know, you can give your Kindles, anything like that. You can't just beat the feel of a nice hardback book. And this for me is uh, the royal blue cover, the white, and then, of course, plenty of embarrassing pictures of Preno when he was a young man, <laughs> which is even more comedy value. But I'll show up about it because, Dave, tell us a little bit about how it came about. Well, it's actually, if I'm counting back now, probably... The third book I've done off my own bat, and I've done a couple of collaborations with David France, but the first one was, oh gosh, way back in about 1988. And it was effectively a kid's book. Uh, I think Hamlin's, was it? The publishers got in touch with me and asked me if I could do a literally a hundred page like history of Everton, but aimed at a children's market. So I did that and God knows where that is. No one ever sees that on the shelves anywhere these days. <laughs> so if you, if you ever see one on eBay or something, let me know. I'd like to buy a copy myself. <laughs> but then I did um, a collection of uh, just echo match reports, basically 10 year blues um, way back. Well, gosh, shortly after Wayne Rooney had made his debut. That's and, right, yeah. yeah, that's all it was, just a collection of match reports and uh, Blue Coat Publishers in Liverpool published it for me. And um, 
didn't do particularly well. But I remember uh, when Skies Are Grey at the time uh, reviewing it very kindly for me and actually saying that, yeah, you know, we enjoyed it, but we actually want the stories behind the stories. We want to know why Peter Johnson thinks you're that shit from the Echo and, you know, so what, you know <laughs> why you, know, you fell out with certain players during your time. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, it is something that I would like to do. But obviously, when you're the Everton correspondent of the Echo, you know, you're, you're given so many... So, so much trust by so many people that I felt it was not something I could really do. Um, so anyway, enough water's come, gone under the bridge now. I'm certainly not betraying any confidences in there. <laughs> but, but equally, there's lots and lots of, I think, very entertaining tales. I mean, as you know yourself, Greg, I used to like relate a lot of these tales when I was uh, sat around the desk. And uh, every time I start telling some of the stories, people used to say, oh, you've got to put this in a book. You've got to do this. You know, you've got yeah. to commit this to print. You know, so people would, would like to read it. So I started like knocking like these anecdotes together, oh gosh, a long time ago. And I just sat there in my inbox, probably about 10,000 words in total of uh, stories about, you know, the, uh, the, the Graham Stewart and Peter Brigley and Knight on the Lash before, uh, before Diamond beautifully chipped Tim Flowers against Blackburn. You might not have got <laughs> yet. Uh, the bit about Brett Angel thrown up into a plant pot uh, before Neville's testimonial after Duncan had got his hands on him. funny little tales like that. And so I'd knocked all them together and they just sat there and I thought, I need to do something with this. I need to try and turn it into a book. And probably tail end of last year, I spoke to a couple of publishers and obviously reached PLC, still my employers, went to their guy, their publishing arm, and said, would you be interested? And absolutely bit me hand off. So, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely we would. So I thought, right, you know, let's, let's start and commit to this. I said, where would you like it by? I said, we want it this year. I said, if you can commit to, I think they wanted 80,000 words by July. I said, we can get it in the, uh, the shops for October this year. I thought, wow, can I do that? Can I do 70,000 more words in the space of wow. a few months? Never having written one like that before, I thought, well, let's just give it a go. Anyway, we know what happened to the world then. We went into lockdown. I was working from home, which meant that I was uh, saving myself an hour and a half's commute time every day. So that helped in some degree to just get really stuck into it. And I raced through it. You know, I finished it by June. Um, the, the only difficult part was the title didn't have a decent title and uh, we had a working title um once a blue from the other way in Rooney thing you know on his uh, on his t-shirt yeah never, never really happy with it just thought doesn't quite hit the mark that once a blue and I was trying to think of puns galore and I was you know asking people uh, a couple of the guys at the echo the good headline writers I was asking them for ideas and uh, no one really came up with anything particularly good and I don't know why I was just thinking of songs terror songs I think you know one of the chapters talks about terror songs I thought, granddaughter, to report. I thought, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> the light bulb moment. The final, you know, sort of bit, really. So, yeah, you know, um, it, it was written fairly quickly. Uh, gave it to the guys who wanted various pictures to go with it. You know, you referenced some of them. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased with it. You know, I really am pleased with the way it's turned out. I mean, I hope it's taken in the spirit in which it's intended. Lots of funny stories in there. I don't want to alienate too many people in there, but there are people in there that don't come out of it particularly well. But having said that, everything in there is absolutely 100% true. And, uh, you know, a true reflection of my time uh, writing and watching about Everson for the Echo. And I actually go back earlier than that, you know, my days working on the weeklies and the other Southport visitor. And so the very, very, you know, very, very early days as a supporter perched on the uh, crash barrier in the enclosure, going back to East, the Monday, 1975, when I first set foot inside Goodison Park. God, I'm getting on a bit, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Dave, when, when you were, you know, when you were 
going as a fan and a young lad. Did you always, I mean, because I know speaking for myself, I always wanted to do your job when I, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, run to the news agent to get the Echo late edition and read your stuff. Did you want to be the Everton correspondent for the Echo when you were, you were a young lad? 100%. I mean, that, that's, I articulate that in the, uh, in the book because... You know, everybody wants to be a footballer. And uh, as Tony, I'll tell you, I haven't seen me play on a Tuesday night. That was never going to happen. So, um, you know, the next <laughs> best thing is actually writing about football for a living. And so from a very early time, I just, that's what I want to do. I want to write about football. And I want to write about Everton. And um, it, it was quite funny because, you know, lots and lots of accidents and coincidences, you know, sort of fell my way to allow me to actually fulfill that dream. Um, not least, you know, so uh, an English teacher at school that actually, you know, didn't particularly uh, rate my chances of getting a GCSE in English, which actually shook me a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it was a long, long drawn out saga. But, yeah, I wanted to be the Emerson writer. And in the 70s and 80s, we never actually had an Emerson correspondent to the Echo as such then. So there were luminaries like Charles Lambert, who used to uh, write Emerson and Liverpool reports for the Echo. And I loved his stuff. And uh, Ian Ross, who then later went on to work for Everton and uh, worked for the Daily Post, who, you know, had a very, very great turn of phrase. So they were the kind of guys that, you know, I would eagerly, you know, sort of read their reports and, you know, absolutely devour and wanted to try and emulate what they were doing. And it was, like I say, a lot of things just fell, in, fell into my path, really. Uh, I was the Tranmere writer originally when Tranmere got promotion to the championship, as was. Uh, they never had a full-time reporter in the Echo then. Uh, so they decided that you know, they needed to appoint one. So I was doing the Tranmere job for a couple of years, which was a great time to actually report on Tranmere. But then Ken Rogers, who was writing about Everton, was uh, made the Echo Sports editor. I said, they needed an Everton writer fairly quickly. And I said, well, look, I can do both. I said, what do you mean you can do both? Said, no, honestly, I can. Don't worry about it. I'll be able to handle you know, the workload. And I tell you, talk about coincidence. Uh, Tranmere were playing... Um, a home on a Saturday, Everton played at home on the Sunday against Newcastle. This was in yeah. March 1993. Um, yeah. Tranmere played away at Brentford on a Tuesday night. Everton played Chelsea away the next night, like literally five <laughs> miles down the road. Um, Everton played, sorry, Tranmere played Bristol City on a Saturday afternoon. Everton played Coventry away the next day on a Sunday, which was like, again, you know, like, like 50 or 60 miles down the road. It was almost like it was preordained. Yeah. So, you know, I, I did it for a couple of months. And at the end of the season, they were obviously pleased with the job I'd done and said, right, okay, you know, that's it. You are the Everton correspondent permanently. And I was for the best part of 10, 12 years until I literally became uh, the chief sports writer when I had to uh, combine writing about Emerson with writing about the other shower across the park. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different story. <laughs> Dave, no, being the correspondent of, of Everton Football Club, uh, without going too much into it in terms of the book, what was your, your highs and your lows in terms of that job? There were oh, lots and lots and lots. Um, the highs, I mean, obviously reporting on the last piece of silverware that Everton won uh, the FA Cup in 1995 was a huge high. And uh, I talk about actually getting very emotional then. I was trying to dictate six parts of copy down the other phone to the copy takers back at the office. And um, I was filling up. You know, these are guys I'd worked with every day for years and years. I was an Everton supporter anyway. And it was just like a beautiful emotional moment. And I thought I got away with it until I got back into work on Monday. And uh, Karen, the copy taker, had told the whole world that I'd been blubbing like a baby. I wasn't. <laughs> but uh, that was like a real high. Uh, and it obviously... The counter to that is the, the circumstances in which Joe uh, left the club in a way in which he was mutually consented. And I, I love Joe Royal still. Uh, we had a great relationship at the time. And I'm very, very 
saddened really by the way in which that all ended. But I think if you were to say, like, you can't really say one particular high as such. I just think it's the number of enduring relationships that I made doing that job, which I would say is the high. Guys that I consider now to be personal friends, you know, like Joe Royal, Graham Stewart, David Unsworth, um, you know, people who are still at the football club now. You know, once Everton has touched you is the old uh, catchphrase, which sounds a bit cliched, but it isn't. It's genuinely true. Once Everton has touched you, you know, life is very, very different. I just think the relationships that I forged forever with those people that initially were professional contacts that then became, you know, so sort of dear, dear friends, is probably the biggest tie I can say of doing that job. Probably just on that, Dave, I mean, you obviously straddled the era before the digital uh, start yeah. of digital and then when, when clubs became increasingly aware of controlling their own media. Yeah. Um, and, and so you've had, <laughs> you've probably had more than your fair share of that. But I think what I was always envious of is that you also had that part of the, the, um, the time in journalism when you were able to, to be almost embedded and to, yeah. to, to, to have contact with players. And then that's what shines from, from the pages here and the photographs is that you do count Unzee and, and Joe Park and people like that as, as your very close friends. And, you know, the, the, the laughs that you've had, I always remember you talking to us about the, the pre-season tour to Sweden in 94. Oh, God, the legendary <laughs> pre-season tour, yeah. Well, that, that features in there quite significantly. <laughs> it was a very very different era and um, it was certainly much much better at that time i mean you were allowed to forge relationships with people and you were allowed to gain their trust i mean you know so obviously if you let them down you know you would never get that kind mm. of privileged insight uh, but you know we, we traveled with them on pre-season tours and uh, we socialized with them and as a result, they grew to trust you and you grew to, you know, turn a blind eye to some things that maybe um, nowadays, you know, would, wouldn't be turned a blind eye to. But it was, it was, it was very, very different. And I think it was very, very much for the better. And it's not like an old fashioned, you know, sort of olden days was better kind of a story. Because actually reference in there a very modern quote uh, from Wayne Rooney, who spoke only about two or three years ago uh, in the England setup when he talked about he wanted greater openness and greater transparency between the media and the players. And he wanted the media to be invited in uh, to actually spend time socialising with the players and get to know them better because he felt it was healthier for both parties concerned. And so I was pleased mm. to see that. I thought, well, it, it's, it's not going to happen to anything like the extent it did. Um, but it did make a huge difference. You went around there every single day to Belfield and you had a cup of tea with the manager and you'd have a conversation with him. And as a result, you'd have a very, very informal off the record conversation and you would know what he would want to write or what he would want publishing and what he wouldn't want. Uh, and sometimes if things were a little bit you know, murkier, you say, am I okay to write this? Do you want me to inc include that? And just, you know, basically, you know, sort of clear the water. And it last, lasted like that for a long, long time. And it only really started to change. Obviously, the onset of uh, clubs, media departments, and, you know, sort of digital journalism changed things. But equally, the move to Finch Farm was the, was the big turning point for me. Uh, because I think the club saw that as an opportunity to finally stop the Echo's daily access and I uh, said, no, no, because we understand why, you know, they were getting absolutely battered for demands uh, from all sections of the media. I mean, obviously, when I first started, Sky TV didn't exist. Uh, the various websites didn't exist. But they saw that as an opportunity to pull the drawbridge up a little bit and just to, um, you know, sort of keep even the local paper, The Echo, at arm's length. And we still did okay, you know, so obviously you got down there, you know, saw more than most journalists, uh, you went on pre-season tours. 
and I got to speak to you know so yeah well on, on that yeah. of course which obviously happened in Australia <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that was happening you know so less and less and so yeah it was I was probably quite fortunate to get into journalism when I did because I got the best of that and then uh, I saw how it changed and you know obviously I'm, I'm still working in journalism now and still uh, doing the job as best we can but it's different and and for me it's nowhere near as good as it was i don't know when you're collaborating all these chapters i thought 36 and all in total in the book was the some stories that you you wanted to get in but you just didn't have the the time or or the room for i don't think so um i, I got all the, uh, the the entertaining funny stories in there that i wanted to um I don't think I'd like betrayed any real, you know, so horrendous confidences. Uh, just, I was thinking actually the other day, a couple of little, you know, because people that have read it and they're, you know, have been very kind about it. Um, and I've said that, you know, is there anything in there that, you know, you've left out or you wanted to get in? And I didn't include the night that Tony Bellew won the world title at Goodison. Uh, and I should have done really, because even though it's not really an Everson story as such, it is, you know, it's a, it's, you know, a local lad, you know, local, an Evertonian winning a world title of Goodison, and it was an absolutely perfect evening. When you were there, Greg, you remember it, the, uh, you know, yeah. how clear you know, the night was, beautiful blue skies, just one of those really wonderful, heartwarming evenings. So that didn't make it in. But as far as you know, anecdotes and you know, sort of day-to-day stuff, obviously you can't include absolutely everything. Mm. Um, and probably some of the more recent stuff, um, you know, last season, uh, I don't think it's a secret that I, I spent, you know, sort of, certainly the, the first half of the campaign watching the, uh, watching the matches uh, in the director's box uh, at the invitation of the, uh, the club's chairman, uh, having, you know, sort of being entertained in the, um, in, the, in the boardroom, you know, so before games. I've not really included anything from them because I think that is, you know, sacrosanct. There shouldn't really be, you know, sort of lifting the, the veil on what, you know, is spoken of in boardrooms, uh, you know, during matches. But other than that, pretty much everything's in there, and uh, yeah, I'm pleased. Like I say, it's uh, it's come up pretty well. I, you know, I don't think there's too many people that will you know be hopefully trying to sue me. We'll have to wait and see on that one. I'll probably have to find out in January for that panel after everyone's read it after Christmas. there, which is absolutely bizarre, is when I was actually called to act as a basically a witness in court for David Moyes, who was suing Wayne Rooney. And I was like, oh, how did it come to this? And I remember after, or a couple of years after Rooney brought out his autobiography, and uh, David like, pulled me after the press conference on a Friday, can I have a word, Preno? I said, oh dear, that doesn't normally spell you know, anything good. <laughs> and um, I, I said, yeah, yeah, well, what's up? I just want you to meet somebody. So introduce me into that little porter cabin that they used to have at Belfield to Eddie Palladorio, his grief. And I said, yeah, what's this? He goes, uh, I'm, I'm suing Wayne. Uh, he said a few things about me in the book that I can't have. And I should have actually noticed then. He actually said, you know, say for argument's sake, sometime down the line, I wanted to become Manchester United manager. I can't have, you know, so players believing that I can't handle big name players like Wayne Rooney. Wow. And I should have really, you know, so made a note of that there and then, because clearly this was a man who had ambitions to, you know, manage football clubs above and beyond Everson. But I had to sit down and meet this brief and discuss, uh, I think it was about a 12 page document I had to put my name to in the end. Basically saying that, you know, I hadn't, you know, or David hadn't leaked any stories to me about Wayne. If you remember those very unpleasant tales about him, you know, visiting ladies of the night, which had been in all the, uh, <laughs> all the, uh, the Sunday newspapers. And uh, there was a reference to it in a piece I'd written in the Echo one night. 
And, you know, he accused David Moyes of having leaked that to me. Well, it was in all the Sunday papers previously. You know, he had not leaked anything to me. And I just wonder whether it was like that old thing about um, a local lad. You know, while it's in a national newspaper, you can, you know, basically not gloss over it, but you can, um, mm-hmm. it's the press, it's the press. You know, what they like the tabloid press. When you read something like that in your local evening newspaper, I wonder whether they brought it a little bit closer to home, which is why he was looking for somebody to blame and, you know, sort to blame, you know, David and, you know, by association myself. As it was, it was all settled out of court. Fortunately, I never had to go into court and, uh, and actually say what I'd uh, given me an answer in that document. It's funny that I think you're probably right on that. I think Deco, you know, for all, it, Deco has its critics these days, but for all that, I think if you're from this city, it's still very much part of your life, part of your, your, grow, your, your growing up and part of the, you want to, you know, it means a lot. And if you're featured in it and you're from Crockey or, you know, from any yeah. part of the city, it's probably got more impact than seeing it in, in some of the tabloids. So well, no there's, doubt. There's a, great, there's a great little tale in there, which uh, I've pinched actually. It's one of me old editor, Alistair McRae's. And uh, I use it to actually uh, accentuate that, uh, that, that argument. And it's Jennifer Ellison, who's uh, obviously an actress of these parts. And, um, I don't know what the story was even, but the Echo had written a story, which she was very unhappy about. And she came in on the bounce uh, to see Ali about it. And um, Ali trying to explain to her, saying, well, I'm sorry, Jennifer, but it's been everywhere. It's been you know, in all the papers worldwide. It was even in the New Delhi Herald, to which Jennifer turns to, uh, to Ali and goes, yes, Alistair, but my nana doesn't buy the frigging New Delhi Herald. <laughs> and I think that's what it was. It was the fact that because it was so close to home and it was in the Echo, that was what upset her the most. And I think, you know, in a very, very similar way, that was probably the situation with Wayne as well. Prana, what's your sorry, uh, Greg? Prana, what's your favourite chapter in all? On all, what's in your book? Oh, difficult, really, because you know I'm 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 quite proud of all of them. Um, favourite's probably not the right word to use in this, but there's one chapter in there which I think is quite poignant, and it's um, uh, you know the old Bill Shankly comment about you know so football, you know, being more important than a matter of life and death, and it isn't. And I talk about how I've not named the player in here, I never will, but you know, a, a former player came to see me once uh, to talk about the possibility of writing a book. And um, I couldn't quite work out you know, his motives for doing so. And we got talking and we got talking. And it turned out that you know, he didn't really want a book written. He just wanted to talk to somebody and he tried to commit suicide. He, he'd find himself in a very low place and he'd um, actually locked himself in his car and popped the, uh, the tube through the win- uh, window and turned the engine on and um, his dad found him and basically saved his life. Anyway, I've seen this guy many times since, and he's fine, he's over all those demons, he, he's conquered them. Um, but, you know, it, it was quite a you know, sort of bleak, you know, sort of time. And then I talk in there as well about uh, when I was covering, I think Shane Neary was boxing Mickey Ward down in London on a Saturday night after we'd played Chelsea uh, away. And my dad at the time uh, was very, very ill. Uh, he'd been diagnosed with cancer a couple of months previously. And uh, he was in a hospice. He was only 61, you know, so very young these days. And I'd gone down there to work. I just, you know, I worked all the way through it. Maybe it's a way of like a coping mechanism. Mm. And uh, I got a phone call on the Sunday morning uh, to, to say, you know, the, the hospice wants you there. You know, so you need to get there quickly. And being a bit naive, I thought, oh, well, maybe he's, you know, they're moving him to a different room or, you know, he's taking a bit of a bad turn or something. Uh, I rang Melanie, my wife, and she said, no, 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 I think that, that, that's bad news. You need to get back as quickly as you can. Uh, so I did. I absolutely, you know, sort of broke the speed limit all the way back home. 
and I got back too late. You know, he passed away literally like a few minutes uh, before, you know, so I arrived back. So where would I have rather have been? Watching Emerson draw 1-1 at Stamford Bridge or, you know, sat at my father's bedside. I don't think you know the answer to that. So that, that's probably the chapter that, that means the most, if you like. Yeah. Uh, whether that you know, qualifies as my favourite chapter, uh, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, whilst that is a sombre story, you know, that they, they are sombre stories, there's lots of light in there, you know, so lots of, um, you know, so brightness in amongst the shade. And, uh, and plenty of very entertaining and <laughs> amusing titles. <laughs> Certainly are. I mean, without giving too much away, one that always just used to blow my mind, especially when I first started, the Echo, and you got to know you, you'd mentioned it to me, was, the, uh, <laughs> was being called to uh, be berated, let's say, by Tim Cale and the rest of the first team squad. For, oh, that was uh, mental. But that was, I mean, again, I think I've done that story justice. That's going to be uh, in the echo this week as part of the serialization. Um, I've just, I've not long been made chief sports writer. And if I'm being brutally honest, yeah, I probably was trying to flex my muscle a little bit and trying to show that I could be, you know, sort of critical and edgy as well as, um, you know, supporting and writing, you know, sort of praiseworthy stuff. And um, there's a lot of circumstances, that, you know, to go behind this, uh, this story. I mean, we were playing Birmingham, I think it was, at home. And uh, Tim had come off injured and um, had been out in town on a Saturday night. And we'd got to hear that there'd been a bit of an altercation involving Emerson players in the old news bar. And uh, Tim was in amongst those players. And they'd all basically had to make a sharp exit and, you know, you know leg it. Uh, so I'd heard about this. And then the following night on the Sunday, Brian Labone, dear Brian Labone, who we all absolutely adored, uh, had gone to a supporters' uh, presentation evening at the Winslow. And Tim had also been invited. Now, Brian presented trophies. Uh, Tim didn't turn up, apparently, because he was injured. Um, on his way home, Brian suffered a heart attack and passed away. And I was very, very upset. You know, we all adored Brian. And I was also yeah. a little bit angry that, you know, so that Tim hadn't bothered to show up. So I wrote this story um, comparing old, you know, sort of salt-of-the-earth footballers to modern footballers and how, you know, old-style footballers would do anything they could uh, to look after supporters. And I was probably a bit harder on Tim than I should have been because I didn't really realise, you know, that he'd been taught by the physios not to turn up because of the injury he'd sustained. But I was aware that, you know, he had been running in town on Saturday night. So you can understand, you know, so why I'd misinterpreted things. So I wrote this column, and it was only a single column on my, my reg regular Friday piece. But you can imagine the fallout. Uh, I wasn't the Everson cor correspondent. I think Dominic King was. And uh, Everson were up at Middlesbrough. And you can imagine the, uh, the reaction. Nobody would talk to him. The echo was barred. Uh, we were told we were persona non grata. And it went, in for went on for several months. And eventually, I think the media team were quite keen uh, to try and get this thing resolved. And so I said, look, if we invited you down, would you come down and explain yourself in front of the players? And I said, well, yeah, of course I would. So I came down and it was, as you can imagine, quite, you know, an, uh, an intimidating situation. Uh, walking into a dressing room, uh, the entire first team squad all sat around there. And uh, so I sit down at one end, they're all sat around and some of them are like quite interested. Some of them are Randy van der Mede, just like looking around like he wanted to be anywhere else. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but Tim, I mean, Jimmy Comer walked in as well, uh, the club master with a pair of boxing gloves. I said, all right, guys, we've been eating these today. And I just thought, oh no, don't. Anyway, Tim leaned forward and he, he was quite aggressive in the way he was talking to me. And I was probably a little bit more aggressive back than I should have been. And I just thought, oh God, you know, what, what's going on here? And I could see Scott McLeod, the press officer, invited me down thinking, oh God, this isn't going quite as I wanted it to go. And then Phil Neville, who wasn't captain at the time, I think, um, was it Alan Stubbs or David Weir was, 
uh, Phil Neville, his captaincy qualities absolutely shone through then without actually taking sides or, you know, so taking, you know, so, you know, Tim's side over mine. I think he said, hang on, Tim, hang on. Let him just explain himself. Let him explain, you know, so why he wrote what he wrote. So we did, you know, so we managed to, you know, so have a full and frank exchange of views. And it was, you know, just about, you know, so smoothed over and, uh, you know, normal relations were restored for the time being. And then obviously we fell out again, you know, so in the future, <laughs> uh, something completely unrelated again. But it was, it was a very, very strange situation. I mean, to sit there and be surrounded by them all and try and explain yourself. And you'd like to hope that something like that would happen again. I suppose it happened because the echo was so important to the football club then. And, you know, I hope that it's just as important now. I mean, gosh, how long ago was that? That must have been like well, well over 10 years or so ago now, if not longer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, you know, certainly the Belfield days because, you know, obviously, I don't know when it was the Belfield went, it was like well over a decade ago. So, uh, yeah, very, very strange and surreal experience. Uh, but, you know, chalk it down to what a life's experience. <laughs> <laughs> and there have been, you know, <laughs> a few too many for us we probably care to dwell upon recently. But there have been a lot of Everton managers who you, you've gotten to know and, very different as people. I can only emphasise the chalk and cheese, David Moyes to Roberto Martinez. Yeah. But again, as you said, you know, you, you would count Walter Smith and certainly Joe Royal as, as lifelong friends. And yeah. which what, who, who are you most in contact with now? Who, who do you hear from most? Uh, Joe. You know, I, I still keep in touch with Joe uh, all the time. And he still sends me messages, uh, always ending with the words, we must meaning that we must get together and have a pint or have a, have a bag to meet. And we always, you know, sort of fail to arrange these things. But we still speak uh, regularly, still keep in touch. Walter, less so, largely, obviously, because he's, you know, so up in Glasgow now. But I speak to him not that long ago, uh, three or four months ago. And both absolutely lovely, lovely people. I mean, Joe was so good to me personally. I mean, um, one of the stories I've referenced in there was one of his first days at the club. And I was at home and uh, the phone goes, and I go, hello, Dave, it's uh, Joe Royal here. All right, hello. Just to let you know, we've agreed a fee with Coventry for 1.1 million for David Burroughs. Uh, hopefully it'll go through tomorrow. So I thought, all right, thanks. And I thought, shit, he's dropped the transfer story at eight o'clock at night. He'll be in all the nationals tomorrow. <laughs> I've missed it. I'm going to get my arse kicked in work tomorrow. Oh, well, you know, at least he's under this decent thing and let me know. I can get my excuses lined up. So I went in and there's not a line in any national newspaper anywhere. You're actually giving it to me personally. So I went down to see him and thanked him effusively. And he said, no, I've got this catchphrase, son, support your local sheriff. Um, I thought, you know, that, that's so nice and so big of him. And so I tried to support him. I don't think I felt compromised by doing so. Uh, I mean, for the first two years of his reign, we didn't, you know, didn't put a foot wrong. So you'd have done well to, you know, criticise him anyway. Uh, so, yeah, it was just a start of like a, a very, very beautiful relationship, really. And I think it was cemented when he was having his tough times uh, when we got knocked out of the cup by Bradford and we'd been knocked out of the League Cup by York. And I was very, very vociferous in my support of him. Not because I liked him, liked him as a man, but genuinely I thought he was doing a good job for Everton Football Club and had done up until December um, of 1996. And he had three bad months, uh, January, uh, February and March of 1997, when it all started to fall apart. And I just thought that the club panicked. And I think Peter Johnson subsequently uh, admitted that. He actually, um, when, oh gosh, when Joe brought his autobiography out, Peter sent him a, you know, a lovely note and uh, signed it, O Me of Little Faith. And uh, I think he did admit that he probably had been too hasty. 
so, you know, still see Joe all the time. Walter had a great relationship with me and Joycey. Paul Joycey worked for the Daily Post at the time. We just got on so well with him. And Walter gives this impression of being this fairly tyrannical, you know, sort of gruff, you know, sort of voiced Scott. And he could be. But equally, he was just such a great, entertaining, you know, sort of bon viveur, if you like. Just it doesn't what what you see isn't what you get on the team. You know, he was a very, very great company. Um, you know, he was quite cute as well. I think he realised that by getting yeah. the local papers on side, you know, so he could get his messages out there just as well. He did. You know, when you got chairman selling centre forwards behind your back, which happened uh, very, very soon <laughs> in, into his tenure. Uh, so, yeah, we, you know, we've had a great time. And, you know, obviously the, the Swedish pre-season tour is the one that you referenced. Uh, but, you know, a couple of those tours to uh, Italy, Il Choco, uh, myself and Joycey were absolutely top class as well. And some very, very entertaining tales uh, from, from those tours in there as well. <laughs> uh, involving Grappa and uh, Open Air Tuscan Banquets and being a hit in the solar plexus by Unzi on a team coach and yeah, all, all kinds of mad, mad, mad tales like that. But yeah, great days. Sorry, Greg. Uh, Prado, to, to finish things off before we wrap up on this podcast, we probably, probably could talk here all night about Everton, but I like the chapter at the end, obviously what Everton means to you. Um, yeah. it, it, it's hard to put into words and I don't know how on earth you've done it, but yeah. what does... Uh, obviously, without giving too much away, uh, how do you address that? How, how would you explain and put into words whatever it means to you? You can't, can you? Because it's just a sense of yourself. It's, um, oh gosh, I, I went into quite, you know, sort of philosophical detail. <laughs> in I loved chapter it. About, yeah. yeah, about, you know, so what, what, what football yeah. people. And um, it's, it is, it's a very, 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 very difficult thing to quantify and uh, I'm just trying to find the, uh, I've got it in front of me now, yeah, whatever it means to me. And it's, it's, it's a kinship, it's a camaraderie with so many different people all around the world. Uh, you know, it fills your consciousness. It's, you know, what, what is Everson Football Club? It's not the team because there's so many different players that have played for the football club. It's not Goodison Park because, you know, obviously we're going to be leaving there in the near future and playing somewhere else. Uh, is it the supporters? Yeah, you know, so probably that you know, goes a little bit towards it. But it's, I think I used the, the phrase common myth uh, because that's what human beings became very, very adept at doing, you know, so many thousands of years ago, believing in common myths. And Everson is a common myth. It doesn't physically exist, but it's, it, it's an imagined reality. And to me, it means so much. I mean, it, it's given me a job, which has helped, you know, so put the roof over my head. Um, it's given me personal happiness. You know, I married Dixie Dean's granddaughter. Um, it's given me so many insane highs uh, watching the team play. It's given me absolutely profound lows as well. And just some enduring relationships uh, along the way. So Everton just surrounds my whole life, really, and always has done. And I'm not alone in that. I mean, you're the same, Tony. You're the yeah, same. Definitely. It's the same yeah. with every Evertonian out there. It just means so much to so many different people. And I've done my best to articulate it, and I still can't get to the nub of it because no one ever will, because it's just like a sense inside you of something that you can't really express. Uh, so I just finished by saying, you know, so just please don't ever take it away. The words of the song, you are my Everton, my only Everton. Um, and it is, it's, it, it's something you can't really express but it means so much to so many different people. And to me, it is a grand old team to report, but a grand old team to support and to, to live watching and for, to live your life around. 
Perno, indeed, indeed. Superb, so, really appreciate that, Perno. There's, no, there's really no better way to, to wrap it up. A grand old team to report. Dave's book, 45 years following Everton Football Club. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you soon.